Chapter Ten of the Real Oscar Wilde by Robert Sherard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. But Oscar Wilde was ever improvident and reckless about money, as so many of his countrymen are. Reference has been made to his having won, at the age of seventeen, for an essay on the Greek comic poets, the Barclay Gold Medal. It would be interesting to know how many times during his lifetime this gold medal was pawned. I remember that it was in pawn when I was staying with Oscar Wilde at his homes in Charles Street, Grosvenor Square, because one day, when he found he had lost the pawn ticket relating to this pledge, he asked me to accompany him to Marlborough Police Court to make the necessary affidavit entitling him to a fresh ticket. He must have greatly prized the actual medal, because it was one of the few things of his past possessions which he preserved to the day of his death. Though often desperately poor after his release from prison, he seems always to have managed to pay the interest on the bishop's medal, and after his death, Robert Ross found the ticket for it amongst his papers. I had always understood that the medal was, though to win it was a high distinction, intrinsically of small value. I was told in Dublin what was the amount the bishop had left for supplying the medal, and it seemed so small to me that I wrote in my life, in a letter written by Lady Wilde to Mr. O'Donoghue, she begs him not to omit to mention, in writing a biographical notice of her, that both her sons were gold medalists, a distinction, she said, of which they are both very proud. Oscar's medal was the Barclay Medal. This prize was founded by the famous Bishop Barclay, who denied the existence of matter, and of whom Lord Byron wrote that when he said that there was no matter, it really was no matter what he said. It was possibly from a desire to be consistent with his principles that the bishop left so small a sum for the purpose of this prize that the Barclay gold medal is not materially of much value. Well, when I asked Ross why, as he had found the ticket, he had not redeemed the medal which had been so much prized by Oscar Wilde, and would consequently have been something that his family would have wished to preserve, he said, it was at the time quite impossible. Why, there was sixty pounds worth of gold alone in it. I am glad of the opportunity of making this correction here and now, and can only suppose that Bishop Barclay's legacy developed amazingly by unearned increment. Another story which was persistent at the time of Oscar Wilde's arrest was that a certain very well-known nobleman was in such terror as to the consequences which any revelations on Wilde's part might bring upon him that he took refuge on board his yacht and remained there, ready at any moment, on a signal from land, to up-anchor and steam away out of British jurisdiction until Wilde had been tried for the last time and had been sent to prison. From Wilde himself I never heard anything either before, pending, or after his trials about the wretched business in which he was implicated, or the wretched people who seemed to have been associated with him. He was absolutely discreet and reticent, and not to me alone. As to this, may I quote what many years ago I wrote on the subject. I am referring to the period when he was out on bail, and I was seeing him every day at Oakley Street. Yet my admiration for the nobility of character which he displayed helped me to bear the tragedy, long drawn out, of those cruel days. 
not one word of recrimination ever passed his lips he attached blame to no one he sought to involve no one he had no thought of vengeance or even of resentment against those who had encompassed his so formidable ruin he bent his broad shoulders and essayed with his sole strength to bear the crushing burden of infamy and fate he never showed himself to me more fine than in the days when the whole world was shouting out that he was of men the vilest the people who had been associated with him in his strange frequentations seemed to have feared he would speak seemed to have feared his revelations a scampering exodus took place from london a wave of terror swept over the channel and the city of calais witnessed a strange invasion from the arcana of london a thousand guilty consciences startled into action by the threat of imminent requitals came fleeing south every outgoing steamer numbered amongst its passengers such nightmare faces as in quiet times one cannot fancy to exist outside the regions of disordered dreams my loyalty in friendship lent to misinterpretation i saw those nightmare faces i was in paris at the time gathering around me watching with pale eyes for sympathy where i had nothing but revolt and horror to give lord alfred douglas of whom i will say that he did not desert his friend when the crash came until wilde himself requested him to leave the country girds against me in his book for pointing out that had wilde chosen to speak he could have disculpated himself almost entirely by implicating others in my book from which lord alfred quotes but which as he says he has done me the honour not to read occurs this passage there had been six counts against him he was asked after his release by a very old friend as to the justice of the finding and he said five of the counts refer to matters with which i had absolutely nothing to do there was some foundation for one of the counts but then why asked his friend did you not instruct your defenders that would have meant betraying a friend said oscar wilde alfred douglas indignantly espouses the cause of the unknown and unnamed friend and declares what we have seen to be false that wilde was not made of the stuff which sacrifices itself for a friend and that far from going to disgrace and prison for a friend he would not even have gone without his dinner the same statement as to his paying the penalty for another man's sins is made by wilde in that long letter which he wrote to lord alfred douglas from reading jail and extracts from which have been published under the title de profundis a book which has made some stir in the world the passage is as follows a great friend of mine a friend of ten years standing came to see me some time ago and told me that he did not believe a single word of what was said against me and wished me to know that he considered me quite innocent and the victim of a hideous plot i burst into tears at what he said and told him that while there was much amongst the definite charges that was quite untrue and transferred to me by revolting malice still my life had been full of perverse pleasures and that unless he accepted that as a fact about me and realised it to the full 
i could not possibly be friends with him any more or ever be in his company i know the man he is referring to a man of very considerable wealth and high culture an oxford man by the way with houses in paris and in england married to a beautiful woman with a family of children the very sort of man who if he had ever had the faintest suspicion that there was anything wrong in wilde's life and conduct or if wilde had ever hinted at the frequentations which were charged against him would have put an immediate period to their friendship but as i know he entirely believed what wilde told him in prison disregarded his penitential self-accusation as to perverse pleasures remained his constant friend and admirer until his death and has respected his memory ever since he was one of the first people to write to me after i had published my story of an unhappy friendship to thank me for having written it i saw him afterwards in paris and he said that never at any time had he had any suspicion as to wilde's morality otherwise he said do you think i would have had him to my house to meet my wife and children i told him that i was exactly in the same position and that not only had i never seen or heard anything about wilde to make me think him abnormal but that also he seemed immune against those natural temptations which beset healthy young men the only time i said that i ever saw him talking to a woman under a sexual impulse was once at the eden palace in paris a sort of music hall which coquettes used to frequent i left him talking to her and i can't say whether he succumbed to her allurements or not but next day when i called on him at the hotel voltaire the first thing he said to me was robert what animals we are i remember the incident trivial as it is because a tragic end was the close of that woman's career she was the marie aguton who was murdered in her flat by the sinister and mysterious assassin and thief who passed under the name of prado but wilde was a young man then and it was long before his marriage in parentheses it is a curious coincidence that the charming young lady who was married in january nineteen fourteen to oscar's younger son vivian is a niece of a parisian grand dame who indirectly was the cause of prado's final arrest she was driving home one winter's evening to her beautiful house on the cause la reine and was just passing a hotel which stands next to the house where prince roland bonaparte used to live when a small dark man dashed out in full flight pursued by a waiter who was shouting the countess's carriage just drove by as the man was bolting across the road he was nearly run over and delayed long enough to enable two sergeants de ville to run up i saw him dash across the road behind my carriage said the countess with whom i dined that evening and disappear down the steps leading to the quay closely followed by the two police officers then just as we were turning into my courtyard i heard the sound of revolver shots this was prado who was afterwards guillotined for the murder of marie aguton plus the attempted murder of the policeman the friend alluded to above was of my opinion that any foolish thing that oscar wilde had ever done had been done when he was not himself 
when he had got several stages beyond mere ballooning he told me in prison he said what you say he told you also that he was strongly under the influence of prolonged drinking when he laid that information against lord queensbury as to this lord alfred douglas denies that wilde was intoxicated at the time very probably not it is not so much when a man is intoxicated that he does foolish and wicked things it is when his brain is muddled and his inside all wrong through a long bout just in the same way it is very rare indeed for a man to be seized with delirium tremens when he is actually drunk it is after he has apparently recovered his senses that the blow falls wilde always told me he was irresponsible and no master of himself when he committed what he described in de profundis as the one disgraceful unpardonable and to all time contemptible action of my life namely informing against lord queensbury as to which action he further says in the same letter what seemed to the world and to myself my future i lost when i allowed myself to be taunted into taking action against lord queensbury with regard to de profundis i would like to say here that until dr meyerfeld first published in germany the extracts from wilde's prison letter to alfred douglas which go under this name i did not know of the existence of such a manuscript wilde never mentioned its entity nor had ross ever told me anything about it nor did i know then or even when that infamous book the first stone came out that the letter had been addressed to alfred douglas or that it contained any recriminations against him i only knew that there were other parts and that dr meyerfeld with the publicist's flair for what is likely to win notoriety and consequently likely to sell was most anxious to publish the whole thing in germany where by the way de profundis first saw the light meyerfeld was most desirous to do this and tried to enlist my cooperation to overcome ross's invincible objection it was not till the ransom trial that i had an opportunity of seeing a typewritten copy of the whole manuscript as it was penned in reading jail and i admit that i then felt that ross had acted with great discretion and excellent good sense in refusing to make wilde's recriminations against his former friend public and this in spite of the fact that there were certain passages or at least a certain passage in the suppressed portion concerning myself which for my own sake as well as that of my friends i should have been pleased to see in print explaining as the words did the nature of my friendship with oscar wilde and further demolishing the evil construction which was put upon it by enemies i also saw how wisely merely from a business point of view ross had acted in suppressing all the matter addressed to lord alfred douglas i don't believe that if the whole manuscript as it stood had been published it would have gained a tithe of the universal appreciation which it now enjoys its beauties would have been swamped in the unloveliness of the peevish recriminations it contains which are of no interest to anybody it occurred to me that the original de profundis might be said to resemble a work written in collaboration by socrates and his good lady ross very wisely has given us the socratean parts alone 
leaving the Zantepe contributions for a remote posterity to deal with. How posterity, a generation and a half hence, will deal with them, who can have a shadow of a doubt? It will leave this bichromatic manuscript to the repose and silence of the strong room in the British Museum. Who, in 1960, will care whether Oscar Wilde sent grapes to a certain Lord Alfred Douglas, or whether the latter did or did not reciprocate the attention? It is too childish even to be considered. In forty-six years from now, the world won't be troubling about how a poet squabbled in the last century with the second son of an eighth Marquess. It will have other tremendous problems to face. I think I may cite Wilde's absolute silence to me on the subject of De Profundis, undoubtedly because of its personal and philippic character, as another instance of his unfeminine character. We have now seen the effeminate Oscar Wilde, with a feminine soul, as a man of great physical and moral courage, as a complete master of his tongue, as a man with whom a secret was eternally safe. We can now return to him where we left him, dressed as a girl in his father's house in Merrion Square, Dublin. He rarely spoke of his childhood, beyond saying that he had been very, very happy. His parents seem to have considered him a prodigy. When he was only nine years old, his mother described him as wonderful, wonderful. Lady Wilde seems to have made a constant companion of her second son. He accompanied her and his father on their journeys of archaeological research. He was on the continent with his mother long before he was out of knickerbockers. There seems to have been little of the nursery in Oscar Wilde's life. The boys used to dine with their parents, even when there was company in the house in Merrion Square. Before Oscar was eight years old, he had, as a biographer of his rights, quote, learnt the ways to the shores of old romance, had seen all the apples plucked from the tree of knowledge, and had gazed with wondering eyes into the younger day. Unquote. As a lad, he was very fond of his brother Willie. When I first met him in Paris, he spoke of him with great affection and admiration. He told me of their games together, and how once, when playing chargers in the nursery, with Willie and the boy who is now Sir Edward Sullivan, baronet, he got his arm broken. It was my first introduction to the horrors of pain, the lurking tragedies of life. He went on to say the detestation he had of physical pain, a thousand times worse than any mental suffering, and could only attribute the heroism of martyrs to a kind of hysterical insanity. At the same time, he declared that he had no sympathy with people suffering from physical pain. Illness and suffering always inspire me with repulsion. A man with the toothache ought, I know, to have my sympathy, for it is a terrible pain. Well, he fills me with nothing but aversion. He is tedious. He is a bore. I cannot stand him. I cannot look at him. I must get away from him. That was in 1883. Twelve years later he found the path of pity and compassion as he describes in De Profundis, and as he proves in his two letters to the Daily Chronicle, the case of Warder Martin and prison reform. 
i think that he was always deeply attached to his brother the fact is oscar wilde had a truly affectionate heart and it was to him he fled for refuge on the night of his release on bail when he had been hunted out of house after house by lord queensbury's myrmidons i remember them as very good friends together in the charles street days i have heard oscar giving willie many a plot for a tale in the world and the other papers to which he contributed he was vastly proud of willie's big success as reporter to the daily telegraph at the parnell inquiry such estrangement as did exist later and for a short period between the brothers was caused by the fact that willie's bohemianisms might injure his oscar's social progress he was rather unkind to his brother about this time spoke of him as seeking after the usual half-crown and referred contemptuously to his brother's gutter friends End of chapter ten